Hello and welcome to the WISH podcast. I'm Grant Bush. And I'm Sean Kaplan. Today we'll be speaking to podiatrist Lauren Brown. Lauren graduated from the University of Johannesburg in 2011 and opened her private practice at Netcare Waterfall City Hospital in the same year. Since 2015, she has joined Professor John Patricius and his team at Waterfall SOS in the Waterfall City Hospital. At present, she's an active member and chair of the Gauteng branch of the Podiatry Association of South Africa. So with that, Lauren, thank you so much for being here today. Cool. Thanks for having me, guys. So the first question, I think a, a good place to start would be if you could please briefly explain what podiatry is and then also what podiatry is not and perhaps clear up any misconceptions that there might be. So podiatrists are basically GPs for the lower limb. We see anything and everything from the hip down. We like to include from the hip down because of the biomechanics that we do. We never just look at foot biomechanics. We look at, you've got to assess all the joints of the lower limb. But not only that, you know, you're treating very common things, ingrown toenails, any dermatological conditions of the foot, as well as any other like little things that kind of come up that people don't actually know what to do with. We're the weird child that no one knows where to put. We're kind of like a dentist. And uh, people have a lot of funny ideas about what we do. Some of the, some of the things that we often get is, do you deal with ankles as well as feet? We get asked that question quite a lot. Uh, you know, do pods only look at feet? No, we don't. Podiatrists are only competent to cut nails. Like, that's what we do. We cut corns and calluses all day. No, that's not what we do. It's a part of what we do, but it's not everything that we do. I always like to describe it as simply as possible, and that is we are like a general practitioner for the lower limb. Anything to do with the lower limb, starting off at a podiatrist is always a, is always a good spot because... Everything that's above us, we know where to refer it to as well. We, uh, I, I think one of the old wives' tales that we love to get concerning nails is um, if you cut a bee in a nail, then um, it, it will stop the ingrown toenail. We get a lot of old wives' tales that come in from patients as well. But I think uh, when it comes to um, colleagues, they, they're not quite sure exactly how much of the anatomy is included in our in our, in our scope of things, but it's, it's basically a GP for the lower limb. Lauren, aside from uh, ingrown toenails, when else should a healthcare practitioner refer to a podiatrist? The most common things that we are going to see is biomechanical adjustments, okay, diagnosis. So often you'll have like a physio who, um, so you have a pod and a physio together or a chiro and a physio together or a biokinetist together with a, with a pod. And there's no access to like a sports physician or something like that. And they, you know, can't refer for radiology or further investigations which the podiatrist can do. So that's from a sports point of view. Um, not to mention anything that is attached to feet is generally in our scope as well. So shoe wear is a pretty big one. But, you know, also smaller things that besides ingrown toenail, um, warts skin conditions, wounds. So when you start going into your chronic disease, there's a whole diabetic component to um, podiatry as well. I, I deal with sports and diabetes. And one of the things that I specialize in is offloading for chronic diabetic feet that have no sensation and will ulcerate if you don't have that offloading in place. Um, so it, it's, it's pretty dynamic. Anything that you can think of to do with like the foot in terms of skin, nails, um, joints, pain, you name it, that's us. 
You touched on quite a few of the concepts that we want to address a bit later, but what I'd like to ask you now is you, you mentioned uh, that podiatry can have quite a big role in sports. So could you please just expand a bit on that? So the main role of a podiatrist um, is to prevent lower limb injuries. And that, that can be from prescribing appropriate footwear, from the type of footwear, the fit of the footwear, um, to you know, making sure that the patient wears the footwear correctly as well um, when it comes to lacing mechanisms. Um, a lot of, uh, sometimes I get a runner who comes in and, um, the, you know, they have quite a high arched foot or they've got, you know, a bump in the middle of their arch on the top of their foot and their tiny lace is so tight. It's generally a pescavoid foot and their tiny lace is so tight that they actually cause a nerve compression and they can't understand when they run why they're actually running with numb toes. And everyone goes, oh, it's a neuroma, it's a this, that, and what have you. No, you're tying your shoelaces too tight and there's a lacing mechanism that we can implement, you know, a box lacing technique um, that can relieve all of that. So shoeing is pretty important and there's a lot that we can probably tell you about shoeing that a lot of people didn't know. Dermatological conditions in sports, when, when you start thinking about like your pro athletes and stuff, if they overdid a session in a new shoe and they got a toenail injury, that can put them out for a week to two weeks if it's not treated because it's incredibly painful. So even skin conditions, nail conditions are really important to manage in anybody who's doing sports, whether you are a weekend warrior or you're playing in the PSL. It's really important that there's a, people are looking after your feet because also calluses can get painful as well. Biomechanical adjustments in sports is obviously one of the main things that we do. Um, and that's when we'll go and do a full biomechanical assessment and we'll look to see where we can make adjustments. Manipulating the foot into a better position that will influence a knee or a hip or a lower back um, in the sense of leg length discrepancy. Uh, those, those things are pretty cool and that, that's what we do with an orthotic. And a shoe, combination of the two. The other thing is diagnostics and investigations. But in terms of sports, the criteria that we like to put together, that is biomechanics involves, if you put biomechanics and sports in the center, you're going to get shoes, you're going to get skin and dermatology, um, nails, you're going to get um, biomechanical adjustments, and you're going to get you know, diagnostics and investigations. Um, so here is something that I typically will refer someone to a podiatrist for specifically, and that is the importance of the right shoes for running or any other sports. Could you please expand a little bit on that for us? What is the right running shoe? How long is a piece of string and what color is it? <laughs> Literally, what color is it? Because that's, I think, the main thing that will influence a patient in terms of the shoe that they pick. Well done for referring this on to a podiatrist because it is something that I think frustrates us quite a lot because the amount of tech that goes into running shoes these days is crazy. So we launched in conjunction with Wish this year, where we did an annual masterclass in technical running shoes. It's actually something from the Podiatry Association of South Africa that we've been doing every year. And it's headed up by Dennis Reebok, who's kind of like our guru when it comes to running shoes, because he's so on top of the companies and it's a long-standing relationship, but he's so on top of the companies in terms of the new tech that they're bringing in. Um, and he actually has a running shoe guide that he produces every year and keeps updated. I'm not joking, it's a 30 page guide to running shoes. 
And if you don't have a basic knowledge of running shoe tech, you are also, you're going to look at this and you're going to be like, I don't know what, I don't know what this is. So the most important thing here is making sure that you have a, some biomechanical understanding, because if you don't, you're going to struggle with the type of shoe that you want. You also need to have some kind of technical running shoe understanding because different brands, different materials, different tech, all operate in different ways. So referring to a podiatrist is a really, really good thing because we've spent a lot of time understanding the tech, how that influences foot biomechanics and how we can use it, how we can manipulate it to do what we want for the foot. I love, love running shoes. I wear them all day. I go every year and I buy a whole lot of different ones that interest me um, purely because the tech is so cool um, that, they've, that they've developed for the year and it changes all the time. So my main thing that I do in my practice is to make sure that I have a good biomechanical understanding of the patient. Are they supinated? Are they neutral? Are, you know, how pronated are they? And how does that, what is that in relation to walking and running? Because it changes. Sometimes it can self-correct. So it's important to make sure that you don't overcorrect the patient. You rather put them into a more neutral base as opposed to putting them into quite a hectic stability shoe. The other important thing is to have a really good shoe store partner because half of the running shoe prescription is the measurement. So to make sure that you get the right fit, and that is length and width. It is, if you don't get that right, it's that patient's just not going to be happy. Um, and then making sure that the patient has enough variety to choose from. Because every brand has a different ride and a different feel. And that is a personal preference that we unfortunately can't dictate for the patient. So you've got to make sure, so the rule of thumb in my practice is, what are the biomechanics like, okay? Is this more of a wider foot? Is it more of a narrower foot, okay, in terms of forefoot width? I have sometimes such wide feet that I can't even get them into a new balance. I've got to go something like an ultra, you know, that's like super wide and it's got a proper square toe and it's really perfect for that foot. I've got some patients that I can't put in anything else. But then I can write a prescription for this patient to say, okay, I want you in a neutral shoe, but I want the neutral shoe to be more on the stable side, like an Asics, for instance. Or I'm actually, this patient is quite lightweight. They're super strong. They, um, they're going to do really well, like a, your, your female ultra athletes. They'll do really well in like a road racer type shoe, super light, soft, um, not a lot. It's just accommodation of the foot. Um, as opposed to somebody who needs a more stable neutral, like the ASICs, where they need proper stability management um, because they've got weak musculature, etc. And then I can write that prescription and say, right, off you go. My shoe partners are the sweatshop. And I've spent quite a bit of time, particularly in the Broad Acre store, um, getting them to understand what my orthotics look like, what fit I want with my orthotic in the shoe, how much space my orthotic needs, um, my different lacing techniques, socks. Socks is another whole topic in terms of shoe wear because you can get the right shoe in the wrong sock. Boop, injury, and the patient's unhappy because they've got blisters. And the blister wasn't necessarily from the shoe, it was actually from the sock. Um, socks is like my little side passion slash fetish thing in terms of feet, socks. Um, so making sure that you've educated your patient correctly on the shoe, how they are supposed to choose the shoe, and that's not by color, 
patient, the first thing the patient wants to do is choose the shoe by color. They like this color, it matches their outfit. No, they have to close their eyes and it's a shoe that they don't want to take off. It's the ride that makes them feel most stable, most comfortable, etc. And the shoe fits correctly. It's not squashing the foot. You've got enough space in it. And then, you know, you've spent a bit of time on lacing techniques. You have a high arch foot. We need to do a box lace. Or um, we need to actually get you a little bit tighter. I need to make sure that your foot doesn't move forward. You use a, a heel lace lock technique to make sure that that foot doesn't shove forward increases the stability of the shoe as well if you do that um, and then you've also educated them because you said while you're there I want you to try this sock I know that this is on their shelf this is going to help you and I want you to try this one thick versus thin bottoms etc um, okay. I actually have another question running That's... shoes are like my thing yes <laughs> okay, to build up on that. you mentioned the tech in shoes does that have any kind of an influence on the performance of the athletes or absolutely the biggest thing that shoe companies are focused on at the moment is weight. Everyone's obsessed with weight and everyone's obsessed with cushioning. So you have this new flubber technology um, that's come in. And actually a great talk to listen to, um, which is on the 2nd of September, is a wish talk. And that has, um, it's about running shoes. And that's Dennis Reebok talking about the latest tech. You can give a lot more um, info on specific tech in shoes. But I'll give you one example of how tech changes and why certain shoes differ from others. So for instance, Adidas developed their Boost Pellet. I'm sure you see all these shoes with their Boost technology in it. That Boost Pellet is pretty awesome. If you've ever taken an individual pellet, you can sit and chew on it for a week and it'll never change size, shape, anything. It'll always go back to its original form. So if you start thinking about how that shoe works, and it has a lot of return of energy. So the patient needs to be quite eccentrically fit to run in it. And they can't be too overweight because otherwise they can't handle the fitness. They've got none, so they land up with an injury. I've seen a lot of patients who are put into, just as an example, an Adidas. It wasn't the correct shoe. They weren't eccentrically fit. They landed up with too much play and they either got a stress fracture or they landed up with an overuse injury because you've all of a sudden got a muscle now that's working hectically, eccentrically, which it's not used to, and poof, you've got an injury. Um, and that's literally a shoe weight change. It's just the wrong shoe that they were in. That's the power of the tech in that shoe and that polyurethane pellet that has that kind of energy return. It's pretty awesome. And I mean, to now have that kind of energy return with that weight, that shoe's incredibly light. So it feels like a glove. It hardly feels like anything compared to like Anasix, for instance, which is a much heavier shoe, like your gel um, Nimbus or your Cumulus, much heavier neutral shoe compared to your Adidas. This is the whole Adidas Nike annual competition. Who can do the lightest shoe? You know, let's do a sub two marathon. That's where that whole debate came in. It was all about weight. Um, I wanted to ask, last year about this time, Elliot Kipchoge yes. uh, ran that sub two marathon. Yeah, and nice fly. He was in the Alpha Fly, which is a, it's a prototype that it's, it's not hybrid. even, yeah, it's not even on the market yet. But my question was, are we reaching the stage where footwear, where at least in professional running, is going to have to be regulated? Are we getting to the point where footwear can change your performance to the degree that it becomes fair or unfair? Yes, that, that's my opinion. Yes. Um, the controversy around that sub two marathon and the hybrid or prototype that he was wearing with the carbon plating in it 
And I think because it's such a new, it's new and it's not new, if I, if I can put it that way. But the way it's being used is new and there's a lot of talk around how that influences propulsion of the foot during your terminal phase of the gait cycle. And you, you know what's so strange is that he's a heel striker. He's not a four foot strike. You go and look at him running. But there was very interesting debate between Simon Bartold, who used to, who used to design shoes for Solomon, um, and he's written quite a few papers, Kevin Kirby and Simon Spooner. These are three quite big guys in terms of biomechanics. And when the sub tukes kind of came out, they had a fantastic debate about the taking shoes and that it's getting to a point now where it's going to have to be regulated. Uh, because it's almost becoming like an like an additive that increases performance. You know, how much of this is natural versus what are my times going to look like in a standard running shoe as opposed to this alpha fly, you know. I'm sure I could also increase my time dramatically downhill. Great, thank you. Excellent. So moving on to a little bit more biomechanics, I wanted to talk a little bit about the windless mechanism. And I, I asked this question in our previous episodes, and I want to get a podiatrist perspective. But how does the windless mechanism contribute to proper functioning of the foot, particularly during running gait? I'm so glad you've asked this question because I'll talk about what the windless mechanism is doing in the patient's foot. I'll always speak about it in a referral, and I'll say to a physio or a sports physician or something, I'll be like, oh, it's a very delayed windless mechanism on the right foot or whatever the case is. And I often get a blank stare. Not sure what the windless mechanism does or how that influences gait. The foot is such a unique, awesome piece of anatomy because of the way that it works. In order to understand the windless mechanism, you need to understand the gait cycle and what actually happens to the foot in the gait cycle and what influences the windless mechanism and what windless mechanism influences itself. An important component of that is the subtalar joint. If you are not affair with what the subtalar joint is doing during the gait cycle, you need to do a bit of reading up because the subtalar joint is like the key. He's the cornerstone of how the whole foot functions. And I can tell you now when I'm prescribing orthotics and I'm examining a patient, my first question is, what is the axis of that subtalar joint? Where is it sitting and how is it influencing the other joints? Your metatarsal joint, your metatarsal phalangeal joint, your knee joint, and your hip joint, open kinematics. You need to understand how it influences it. Okay, so we're not going to talk too much on the subtalar joint. We're going to talk on the windless mechanism. So this is important to understand this mechanism is the anatomy involved in it and a part of the anatomy obviously is the plantar fascia or the plantar aponeurosis and what it is linked to so it inserts its calcaneus and then it comes up and fans out into two bands uh, it's got two bands it's not one it's two when you've got the lateral and you've got the medial band of it the medial inserts into all the digits and the lateral inserts into the base of the foot this is such an awesome piece of anatomy because it is and enables the windless mechanism. And the windless mechanism ultimately is like the defining feature of our foot because it's so prominent in how it functions. Okay, so without this mechanism, we can't maintain our, our longitudinal arch, which means that if we, can, if we can't maintain our longitudinal arch, we, we can't walk in a systematic or efficient manner. Okay. Understanding how this all works is understanding what happens during the gait cycle. So the foot supinates at the heel strike, the subtalar joint pronates, 
um, as the heel as the heel strikes and you start now to weight bear. So as the foot is loading down, okay, then that pronation, that subtalar joint is going to increase the mobility of the foot needed to absorb the ground reaction force. So you've got to remember you've got force from underneath and you've got force of mass on top. This is a great physics lesson. As the foot reaches your maximum kind of pronation at the end of the weight bearing or weight acceptance phase, the actual windlass mechanism forces the subtalar joint into a supinated position so that you're going through your mid stance to your toe off in a supinated position. And this is what helps your foot become that rigid lever. So it's come down, it's absorbed, it hasn't collapsed, and now it's becoming a rigid lever to toe off. So the actual windless word means is a tightening of a rope or a cable. And the plantar fascia is the cable. Okay? And as your hallux dorsiflex at the toe-off or the, the propulsion phase at the terminal end of your gait cycle, it winds that cable around the metatarsal phalangeal joint so that it will shorten the distance between the calcaneus and the metatarsal phalangeal joint. Okay? And this creates a whole bunch of stuff. Not only is it propulsion, it's stability, it's shock absorption, it's everything. So this is quite an important mechanism in the foot in order to propel you forward. And not only that, to help you adapt to the terrain that you're standing on. Go back to like caveman era, barefoot, unshod homo sapien. You've got Bernard Zipfel, the expert in this, Dr. Bernard Zipfel. Um, and he was looking at uh, first ray anthropology and how it developed in apes. It's another whole side chat. But this windless mechanism is so important because when you start adapting to terrain, we walk on a pretty flat terrain as it is, and we're in a shoe, so there's not a lot of adapting. But this comes into play when all of a sudden you've got like a trail runner, okay? And adapting to that terrain is quite important. And that adaption to terrain is what helps us with managing ground reaction force, and as well as weight management, like the weight that our body puts on our foot, it's an equal and opposite reaction that needs to happen. And your foot is the main negotiator of that. And the windless mechanism is one of the important mechanisms. The other really cool thing about the windless mechanism is it's not necessarily muscle related. So you can activate that windless mechanism without having a single muscle act on the foot or a joint. So if you have your patient standing static and you just dorsiflex their hallux, you will see if the windless mechanism is active, if it's delayed, how much force you actually need to apply to that hallux to get that windless mechanism to activate. You'll see in somebody who has a pretty neutral subtalar joint axis, you can easily get their windless mechanism activated. Take somebody who's overpronating. Okay, the subtalar joint axis is, is nearly deviated. So it's not sitting neutrally. This is a patient that excessively pronates. Can have a, a genuvalgum attached to this as well, because you can see it going up the chain. You try and get that hallux to dorsiflex. It's almost impossible because you need to get that subtalar joint onto its neutral axis in order to get that mechanism up and going and vice versa. They, they interact together because of how the subtalar joint influences that foot. It's pretty cool. I don't know if that answers your question. It does. It does. Thank you. So then taking that answer, I want to then talk a little bit about dysfunction in the plantar fascia. So very common injury is, is plantar fasciitis. Can you explain to us and walk us through a podiatrist's assessment of plantar fasciitis? History here is quite important. 
because one of the defining kind of diagnostics in, in terms of signs and symptoms is when does this patient feel pain? Are they feeling pain after rest? First thing in the morning when they stand up and it eases with activity. Generally, when we're dealing with a musculoskeletal injury, we're looking for pain that is either during activity or after activity. Fascia is different. Fascia is its own beast. I always say that it's the plantar fascia can be like a hysterical curl at a 75% of sale. Super unpredictable. And once she's excited, very difficult to calm down. It takes quite a lot and takes time as well. So when we're looking at the assessment of it, first of all, when did this happen? How did it happen? Was there a specific incident that egged this on? Classic example is New Year's resolutions. I've decided I'm going to run this year. I have running shoes in the back of my cupboard. I'm going to haul my 10-year-old running shoes. They look fine. I'll wash them. And then they'll look fine and I can run in them. And I'm going to do 5Ks as my first go. And I'm going to run with someone who's like super experienced because they're going to help me reach my New Year's goal. Plantar fasciitis. So it's, it's really important to understand the sequence of events that led to this. Once we understand the sequence of events that led to this and the possible shoe wear that influenced this, and I, I, I put a lot of emphasis on shoe wear because it's 90% of the time it is shoe wear that causes the problem. Um, we've either spent whole of December holiday in our flip-flops, we cooked Christmas lunch in our barefoot, or we decided to go on a New Year's resolution and run in our 10-year-old running shoes. Once we've got past the history and we've got a clear idea of how this started and what influences this pain, because plantar fasciitis has quite specific influences when it comes to pain. Um, one of the main symptoms that we, we always say is a toilet wobble. The patient will say, man, I get up in the morning and there's a wobble to the toilet and then I'm fine once I've had a shower. And then, you know, oh, generally plantar fasciitis. When we're examining the patient, it's really important to isolate anatomy. You know where that plantar fascia, where that plantar fascia inserts, where it attaches, and you can feel the entire band. So you dorsiflex the hallux, you get onto the medial tubercle of the calcaneus, and you palpate. Sometimes you need to go a little bit more to the central line of the calcaneus, so you need to move medially to laterally, because it won't always present in the same space for all patients. And you need to palpate all the way along. Is this only at the insertion of the fascia? Is this more along the, the mid of, you know, the middle of the band um, of the fascia? Is this more towards the end of the toes? Is this the medial band? Is this the lateral band? That's all really important stuff because it relates to the biomechanics. Because once you've got an idea of exactly where this pain is, you should then be able to take your patient, do a biomechanical examination, and really see what this foot is doing mechanically when the patient is walking. If this is something that was sustained during running, what is the patient's foot doing when they're running? Is there anything that is overloading or causing a windows mechanism dysfunction? What are the mechanics that are influencing this plantar fascia? Once you've got an idea of that, I'm also going to suggest that you do appropriate investigation because this influences the way that you manage it. So the tool that I use most is an ultrasound. Um, and I trust Beverus with all my ultrasounds that are really difficult, especially when we've, we've been struggling for a diagnosis and there's been multiple people or cooks stirring the pot. We, we want to have a definitive diagnosis so that we can see what is really happening with that fascia. Do we have interstitial tears? Is this merely 
an inflammation. And I, I want to just stop on inflammation because understanding the fascia and how it behaves is also understanding that this is not a true itis. This is actually a fasciosis. It's a derangement of collagen fibers in the plantar fascia, okay, that results in an, a zone of avascularity, which is what causes the pain. And if you don't understand that this is a mechanical influence that has, has done this, you're going to find it very difficult to resolve. I get distraught when I hear orthopedic surgeons talking about fasciotomies. You know, I want to, oh, you don't know what you're going to do to that foot if you do a fasciotomy, you know, and that's not the solution. You have to exhaust everything else before you can even think about going that route. And the other thing is, plantar fasciitis is difficult to get rid of. You need to educate your patient. So if you can't educate your patient as to how the structure works, particularly when you're walking or doing a specific activity, they're not going to be compliant. They're not going to want to change their shoe. They're not going to want to go to the physio. They're not going to want to fork out for shockwave. They're not going to want to do any of that because they don't understand why they need to do that. And sometimes it can take months. Sometimes it can take a couple of days. It just depends. That's why they're very unpredictable. It's an hysterical kugel. You need to, you need to have multiple avenues in terms of its management. But um, it's really important to understand the pathophysiology of this and that it is mechanical in nature. If you don't understand how that fascia works and how it influences the foot mechanically, you're going to struggle to treat it. Okay, great. So then going on from that, how would a podiatrist address management of plantar fasciitis? Okay, so once we've got our diagnosis in place and we for sure 100% that this is what it is and you've got your patient on board, the main thing that you're probably going to do is make a shoe change. Patients, they curse me because they go, Lauren, curse you because you get me into a running shoe. My pain goes away. I'm so comfortable and now I can't get back into any other shoe because I'll get plantar fasciitis again. Unfortunately, you have to make a shoe wear change because this is biomechanical in nature. You need to make sure that the base of your treatment is good accommodation for the foot. And that comes in the form of a running shoe. So uh, prescribing the, an appropriate shoe that this patient can wear that will have some biomechanical influence to offload this fascia is quite important. The other thing is that it's not one solution fixes it. You need to educate your patient that this is going to require strengthening. This is going to require a bit of physio, particularly if it's been present for three to eight months. You're going to need a bit of physio. You're going to need a bit of fascial release. We're going to have to look at strengthening. I've noticed in female patients who get plantar fasciitis, core stability and strength is directly related to their plantar fascia. Go and strengthen their core and have good core activation when they are walking or doing activity that they generally have pain in makes a dramatic difference. Once I've prescribed my shoe, rice and therapy. So elevating that foot, resting it a little bit. So please calm down on your running and icing it. Icing is phenomenal. Kevin Kirby, who's a dietist in the States, who's written quite a few papers on the windless mechanism, the plantar fascia, subtalar joint, and the mechanics of all of that. He is a massive advocate of just put ice on it. And it's actually one of the main modalities that I use in treating plantar fasciitis. So icing, you can also use a bit of kinesio tape. Works phenomenally well because the patient will automatically accommodate their gait and have some kind of offloading effect from that taping, which is fantastic and it's what we want. The other more strenuous, so now once we start getting into a chronic plantar fasciitis, we need to start looking at 
more stringent biomechanical changes. So an orthotic. It, and you'll find that because plantar fasciitis very rarely reaches a podiatrist in its acute phase, it generally comes in a chronic phase because they've been referred on or they've used other treatments that just haven't worked, um, we'll, go the, we'll go the orthotic route because we need to make a bigger biomechanical change to offload that plantar fascia. The other thing that I like to include with this that has been very successful is shockwave therapy. So a combination of physio, shockwave, orthotics, and shoes, and patient education with strengthening goes a million miles and generally resolves the issue. Excellent. Thanks. Uh, Lauren, how important is foot posture or correct foot posture? So a lot of people like to use a foot posture index. Everyone but, I think, podiatrists. <laughs> there might be a new generation coming through that um, is more inclined to use a foot posture index. But to be honest with you, foot posture index is more of a quantitative tool that is used in research. In terms of a clinical setting, we are more interested in dynamic kinematics, if I can put it that way. So dynamic biomechanics that we are seeing, that we can influence, that we can measure. Having said that, foot posture is generally a static measurement that I find doesn't really have a huge influential place within clinical practice. I stand to be corrected, but I found that, you know, measuring things like your subtalar joint axis, you know, how functional is your windlass mechanism, doing a video gait analysis, all of those things are more useful um, when it comes to doing biomechanical assessments. I think once you learn the foot posture, you kind of understand it, it's kind of like the base knowledge that you build on and you'll base other things on. But everybody has such a different and unique foot. You can get a Pace Cavoid foot that comes in with this incredibly high arch, tripod distribution, not a lot of stability, and all of a sudden you've got to stabilize this foot uh, because this patient is getting overuse injuries from trying to stabilize this foot all the time. And then you can get a horribly flat foot where you've got navicular weight bearing. I love to give an example of how genetic morphology makes up so much of it. And just because it looks one way, doesn't mean that it's wrong. I had a classic presentation of this with a 16-year-old, SA schools, provincial and club squash player. So this guy played squash three to four hours, seven days a week, 365 days of the year. Dad was a master's player. And I've never seen Jenny Valgum and overpronated flat navicular weight bearing feet like I did in this guy. Yet he is doing a high intensity volatile sport with zero pain. So everybody has their own individual normal and it's difficult to box them because if you try and box them into something that is considered a normal, you could actually be hindering them and potentially injuring them. Like if I corrected that guy and I was like, oh, that just looks so wrong. I, I want to put an orthotic in to correct that. I can create an injury for him that, you know, which is not something that you want to do. And this is actually a, a massive question for parents with young kids who see feet that are out or, you know, very flat feet, rolling arches, that kind of thing. And it's a question I'm often asked with pediatrics coming in, like, do we correct that? The first question is, is there pain? Is there pain? If there's no pain, this child is super active and there's good mobility, range of motion in those joints. We've got good strengthening going on. We will far rather go the strengthening route as opposed to a very corrective route because you can potentially cause harm and reliance on certain things. If I had a signature book, I would ask you to sign it after that. That was perfect. <laughs> um, so Lauren, thank you so much cool. for your time. We really appreciate it.
if listeners wanted to hear more from you or to contact you, where should they go? So they can go to my website, which is www.happyfeetpodiatrist.ca.za. It's really easy to remember. Or they can look me up on Wish, or they can look me up on the Waterfall Sports Orthopedic Surgery um, website as well, which is in the Naked Waterfall City Hospital. They can also find me on Facebook, Lauren Brown Podiatrist. Great. Thanks so much. And that's all we have time for in this episode. This concludes our series on the foot and ankle. Look out for the next episode of the Wish Podcast, where we will be interviewing Dr. Brad Gelbart as we start with the series of the knee. Thank you.